0: Hi, this is Wilson, lead pastor of Renewed Church OC. Thanks for listening to our podcast. Our sermon series, Psalms, the Internal Life of David, pairs narratives from David's life with Psalms that help us pull back the curtain to understand what he's feeling, how he's praying, and the way he's relating to God. LA is all about how you look and the two-second impression you give to other people. But God doesn't look at the appearance, he looks at the heart. I hope this series helps us to take our eyes off of the external and focuses our attention on developing our internal life with Jesus.
1: So typically I have a question, but we've talked so much about RFKC, so we're just going to jump right into it today, make it nice and simple. Um, and so. We've been talking about David, right, and David through the Psalms and excavating and looking through what does his internal life say and how do we live? Oh, yep, and how do we live? And so we've been doing that for about five weeks now, but I want to look in the perspective of David. So David got anointed by Samuel, correct? And at this point in his life that we're going to go into, it's about 15 to 20 years later. It's arguable how much exactly, but around that time. And David is finally going to become the king that he was meant to be. So, on the boards, or if you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to 2 Samuel 5, we're in verses 1-5. through 5. It's on the board. I can't see it from the same goal. Okay. Verse 1. All the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, We are your own flesh and blood. In the past while Saul was king over us, you were the one who led Israel on their military campaigns. And the Lord said to you, You will shepherd my people Israel, and you will become their ruler. Now, I want to quickly pause here and say how important this is, because this is how Israel sees David. David is flesh and blood. For them, he is family. And so they welcome him in as family. That even when they think about the time in which Saul ruled as king, they look to David and they say, you're the one who faithfully led us in battle. You're the one who protected us. And... You're the one who's the true shepherd sent by God for us. This is super important because this is his relationship with Israel. And so verse 3, we see, When all the elders of Israel had come to King David at Hebron, the king made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord. And they anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he became king, and he reigned 40 years. In Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months. And in Jerusalem, he reigned over all Israel and Judah 33 years. Now, David essentially spends all his life as king, right? We know that David passes on the throne to Solomon. But what's important here is that we see that David makes a covenant. He makes a covenant to Israel before God. And like most covenants, right, we think of a marriage covenant, it's closely tied to the idea of commitment. So whenever we talk about marriage or you talk about, you're also saying I'm gonna commit to this person, right? I'm gonna commit myself and we're gonna commit each other to one another. The same goes for David. And that when we look at what he says here, he's actually making a commitment. And it's not a commitment that I think comes just because he's king, but I think it's a commitment that developed in the young places of David's life, in the internal places of David's life. And now, this is simply a reflection of that. If we look in kind of just like, you know, a little flashback of David from the past, right? David started as just a shepherd boy, and he has a small platform, right? He's a shepherd boy of a small flock, and, but he's committed, Right? He's committed to protecting them, leading them, and he's so committed that we hear he throws his body to the lion in order to save them. Then later on as a teen, right, I don't know if I'm going to do this as a teen, but for perspective, David is a war hero, and he becomes a military officer of a thousand men. There's, I don't think any of our like, uh, 15-year-olds would be ready for that, but that's David's position. And he has his own band of rebels at some point, and it's with those rebels in that army that he actually overthrows Saul as well. And just as much as he was committed to them, it showed him how committed they were to him, to follow him, to do everything he did, and to say, you are my king, even over Saul. And so as David continues, he rises up the ranks, he becomes king of Judah after Saul passes, and then now we're here, right? We see him finally taking his rightful throne as king of all of Israel. And as his power and his platform increases, we also get to see the character of commitment grow as well. And as God continues to give him more and more, kind of we see, you know, military officer all the way now to king, God also gives him in accordance to his commitment in those platforms. That he's meant to steward those platforms and live righteously in all of those places and so now as david approaches pretty much the largest platform of his life i'm sure i'm i'm sure if any of us were to become a king it would be the largest platform of our life he has to uphold the same sense of commitment that he had to god that he had to his people as a child right he was shepherding sheep before but now he has that same heart that same commitment and he's putting it as a king. And that's where we kind of find ourselves today, right? What does the heart of a king look like? What is this supposed to be? Um, None of us are kings, none of us are royalty, but I think Psalm 101 gives us a great insight into what is David's heart. This is actually, uh, you can pull it up. It actually takes place before he's even king, right before his ascension, this psalm is made. And so you can follow me here. Psalm 101, a Psalm of David. I will sing of your love and justice. To you, Lord, I will sing praise. I will be careful to lead a blameless life. When will you come to me? I will conduct the affairs of my house with a blameless heart. I will not look with approval on anything that is vile. I hate what faithless people do. I will have no part of it. The perverse heart shall be far away from me. I will have nothing to do with that evil. Whoever slanders your neighbor in secret, I will put to silence. Whoever has haughty eyes and a proud heart, I will not tolerate. My eyes will be on the faithful in the land. That they may dwell with me, the ones whose walk is blameless will minister to me. No one who practices deceit will dwell in my house. No one who speaks falsely will stand in my presence. Every morning, I will put to silence all the wicked in the land. I will cut off every evildoer from the city of the Lord. It's a very strong psalm, very, very strong. And I, I'm sure we're not used to this kind of language on a daily routine. And I don't want to get too nerdy, but it's important that we kind of look at the history of the psalm. So back in the patriarchal, in the medieval times, this psalm had a certain name, and it was known to most people as the magistrate's psalm. Now, it was a psalm sung by the rulers, right? Rulers, governors, anyone in a high place of authority would sing this psalm. It was a psalm to those who had influence and platform and as they say, sing it, it would be a reminder. A reminder to them to keep their eyes, to keep their hearts, and to keep their leaders right with the Lord. And it was that the leaders, their duty, their obligation, their commitment was to continually be influenced by the right things, the right people, and to use that influence in the right way in a godly way, in a righteous manner. And so even though David talks with such great resolve and potency, I know there's sometimes a disconnect when we hear such black and white language, right? This guy, he's king, he can talk like that, but I'm just like a normal person. I don't talk like that. It's kind of a little bit too weird. It's a little bit too far. But actually, if we continue down in church history, we see that the psalm actually created had another name. It gained the title around, I would say, the 1800s, late 1800s, it gained the title of the Householder Psalm. Because it was realized that as we dissected the psalm, looked into deeper, that the psalm was actually meant to extend to the household. That anyone in the household would apply. And that when David talked about his home or he talked about his house, it was a mix, right? that he was referring to Israel, but he was also referring to his direct home, right? So when you think about it, it's like mom, dad, right, raising their children. In David's case, raising, what, eight boys? My gosh, that's way too many, right? It would apply to the brothers and sisters in their relationships, right? How do they handle, how do they love each other, or how do they fight? (laughs) That's probably more relevant sometimes. And then by extension, we see that for each household member, it also extended out to the, their own platforms of influence outside of the house, right? So uh, one of the youth kids, he told me this on Wednesday, and I thought it was super funny. So he, his name is Jaden. He's right there. You can call him out. Haha, <laughs> I know. Point him out, Nate. <laughs> yeah. But he told me this funny funny story. Or it wasn't like a story, but he told me something really funny. So he's been helping out with OC United summer camp. And he's there you know, twice a week literally like a full-time job helping. So kudos to him, it's, I'm super encouraged when he does that. But his assignment was he had to watch over first graders and second graders. Now, I don't know if it's always a good idea to have a ninth grader look over a whole bunch of other little kids, because usually you're like, I-, I need to bring an adult for that, You know that's just a safe thing to do. But he was in charge of them. And you know what happened? They ended up electing him as their boss. <laughs> yeah, right. It's pretty good. So imagine a ninth grader and all the first graders and second graders, they love him and you're like, our boss. So whatever Jaden tells them, they do what Jaden says, or I hope so. <laughs> yeah, right. Oh, he's nodding his head. Yes, right. Whatever he says, hey, I'm going, they follow, right. And so already Jaden's a ninth grader. He's still young, but these first graders and second graders look to him. And he has this clear platform of influence in their lives. And most of us do that, do, most of us have that as well. Right, when you use social media, you have a platform and influence, right? All the people that follow you, they see your post, they either like it, they comment it, uh, we're all very familiar with how social media works nowadays. And sometimes it causes a response. You know, lately I've been seeing a lot of people go to Hawaii And it just makes me like, oh, I want to book a ticket to Hawaii. That looks so nice for vacation. And already, right, they're influencing me. They make me want to go to Hawaii. Yeah, I know. Nate, another youth kid, went to Hawaii. Must be nice, yeah. And so if you're a teacher, right, you also have a platform and influence over your students. Right, imagine the environment that you create, the words that you say, the attitude that you have, you are using your platform and influence. And you can easily use this platform and influence for good, but also for evil, right? It could be a time to encourage the next generation, to raise up kids, to teach them uh, like life skills, and you know, math is applicable everywhere in life. But it could also be a power trip. And I talk to the kids enough, I hear their stories a lot, and they're like, oh my gosh, this teacher's the worst. They just tell me what to do. They don't care about me, and I'm like, oh, that's really sad. But sometimes, even as a teacher, that's what it looks like. It's a time to rule over a bunch of kids. How great and mighty is that? Not very, right? But maybe some of you, and I know a lot of you are in business. You're in management roles, and you're asked to lead employees. You have a platform and influence in the way you train them, in the way you care for them, ask them how they're doing, how they're adjusting. Uh, even your ability to logistically like, be like, very organized helps save them time, right? You're building a healthy work culture, or at least hopefully, because easily we know this, and we see it all the time in, in the news, that business becomes a easily, it's for personal gain, right? I go into business, and I was like this in college, I go into business, why? Because I need to make money. I go into a management position, why? Because it means more money. Ah, maybe it means that other people have to look up to me. Maybe I don't want to do the day-to-day routine. I just want to tell someone else to do it, and then I put it away, right? Sometimes management feels like that. And I think we miss out on a great opportunity, right? If you're an employer, if you're a business owner, how are you vision casting for your employees, right? How are you giving them a purpose and a reason beyond just going to work from, the eight, to the, from eight to five. Right? We all have platforms of power and influence and they all look so different. Right? If we look around this room, most of us are either students or we're working and our jobs look so different and our roles look so different. And that already tells me a lot that the vastness of where you can have a platform and you can have an influence is also vast as well. But it begs one question that we all then also have to ask, right? How have we used our platform? Have we used it for ourselves? Or have we used it in a godly manner like David has, like David's trying to teach us? What does it then look like if I'm I'm convinced that maybe I should use my platform better? What does it look like to steward that platform well? We're all wondering that because it's just a big question of like, what am I supposed to do? What if I'm just an employee? What am I supposed to do? And so I want to talk about three specific commitments, right? We talked about David being immensely committed in covenant. And I want to talk about three commitments that we see in David's psalm, in Psalm 101. And I hope that it spurs us. It spurs us to desire what righteous stewardship looks like of our platforms. And so I'm going to put the three, platform, or the three commitments up there. The first one being the commitment to be blameless before God. The second, the commitment to be influenced by godly company. And last, the commitment to, be, to stand up against wickedness and evil. And so our first commitment, the commitment to be blameless before God. Now, if you're in Psalm 101, I would... Always have your Bibles out if you can, have your phones, it's easier to just track. David says this right when he begins, I will sing of your love and justice. Whose love? God's love, right? David attributes love and justice to God because God is love and justice. This is foundational for the believer to believe that love and justice are things we pursue because what? Because God is those things. And we pursue all of it as we pursue, it, as we pursue him. And in verse 2, David desires a blameless life. And it's interesting, he says, I'm careful to do it. Now, when we look at careful, it means he's attentive, he's detailed. He doesn't want to get distracted. And he knows how easy it is to get distracted, so he's careful and he's vigilant to be blameless. And it's worth it for him to be blameless. Because a blameless life and a blameless heart would mean God would come to him. That God would be present in his limb. That's why their question is there. When will you come to me? Because he's waiting and anticipating, if I have this blameless life, Lord, I want you to be present with me. But it doesn't just stay there. He continues, I will conduct the affairs of my house with what a blameless heart. This is David's platform of influence. We talked about it, right? His home, his immediate home, an extension to Israel, right? His nation, his country. And he has commitment and covenant commitment, if anything, to all of them. And just as he desires to live a blameless life, he wants it to also be prevalent in the place of influence, in his places of influence. When we look at our own uh, platforms of influence, are we thinking about being blameless? Probably not. Blameless is not even a word. I checked in like MW. Like, you know, they sometimes Merriam-Webster likes to give you a usage of the words. Blameless is not a word we use nowadays. Um, like, it's like the chart goes here, and then it goes here, it goes that, and then it goes like all the way down, right? We don't use the word blameless. So it's hard to understand, how do we stay blameless then before God? Well, Let me show you this. So, uh, I don't know if you guys know this. Most of you, I think, know this. But I'm also a tennis coach outside of pastoring. So I I coached uh, high school tennis. I saw a guy have a Braille Linda shirt there. I'm, you know, I'm over there. So, yeah. Sorry, I just saw it in like the peripheral of my eye. And I do private coach at the high school. And something I have to admit as a coach is that I'm actually really, really competitive. Uh, to all the guys I play tennis with, they know I hate losing. Uh, I'm like a really poor sport. Uh, I'm super negative. It's terrible. <laughs> yeah, you're like, oh my gosh, I do not want this guy as my kid's coach. Like, and I understand. I understand. But in the platform of me being a coach, right? I have 50 high school kids, girls, boys, All kind of like calling me coach and in this platform what does it look like for me to be blameless before God is it my ability to win every match at all costs right do or die now or never like is that the attitude that's going to be blameless before God no and I think you are like oh my gosh like I hope he never coaches my kids but as a coach what I have to do, and I have to think, I'm a Christian, right? And I have to be blameless to God. And that means keeping my own selfish, competitive nature kind of in check, and being sure that my first priority is actually coming before the Lord, just like David is, right? Coming before him and saying, you, Lord, are love and justice, and Lord, you have given me what this team, this role, and it's my job and my steward and it's my role to actually steward this this platform to empower and nurture young athletes, to care for them, to have them understand what love and justice looks like. I want to be like David and conduct my affairs just like him. This is what it means to be blameless before the Lord. That when we think about the places of our platform, we're not just (laughs) self-seeking, right? When we think about our work, our school, it's not just about us. But we're thinking, how do I come before you, God, and say that everything I do is for everyone and for you? For everyone else and you, not just me. That's how we stay blameless. Our second commitment, the commitment to be influenced by godly company. And so if you look at verse 3, David says he doesn't look at anything vile with approval, right? So like if you're to kind of envision that, it's kind of like if I saw something kind of like, mm, if I saw something sketchy, I wouldn't literally look at it with like a happy face. I'd be like, that's not okay. I would be upset, right? And I would mirror kind of just like, That's something that is vile, and so my face shows it. David doesn't want to entertain anything that he feels is wrong. He doesn't want to set his mind or even his facial expressions on it because David understands that what he sees, how he reacts to it, really will be a mirror of who he is and who he becomes. Now, this doesn't mean we shut ourselves off from the world, right? I think it's easy to be like, well, I can't see anything bad, and I'm just going like, to close my eyes. Um, and I've heard like friends I grew up with that were like, you know, they go to college, and college is just this like, wide-eyed experience of, oh my gosh, my parents like, shielded everything from me. And I don't want us to have an experience where we're just closed-eyed, don't see what the world looks like. But rather, I think if we look deeper into this passage and we look into verse 6 and 7, David is expressing that he wants his eyes, he wants to see the faithful of the land, those who are faithful in the land. For David, it's not about kind of like shielding himself off or covering his eyes for him. It's about a distinction, a distinction between those who he allows to influence him and a distinction between those who he allows to minister to him to teach him, to guide him. He wants people that understand kind of his own desire, right? We, to, we keep talking about David is committed. And so he's committed to be blameless before God. He wants to be around people that are committed in that same way. He's committed to being righteous, to loving his people, to guiding them well. Well, he wants to do the same thing. And just as David, right, he seeks the Lord, he seeks the Lord's presence, He wants people that encourage him, that affirm him, that remind him of God's daily presence in his own life, right? Those are the kinds of people David wants to have the deepest parts of who he is. And so I think it begs another question for us. Who are we allowing to have the deepest influence in our lives? Are they people who we consider greedy? Maybe even a little scandalous, self-seeking, or are we creating deep relationships? Deep relationships with people who love the Lord, who desire to live a righteous life, who want justice, who want purity, who want all the things that are good in the eyes of God. How do we continue to surround ourselves with people of such godly company? You know, I have a lot of tennis analogies because uh, coaching takes up most, like. Pretty much most a lot of my time Um, and when I think about the application of this I think about the staff that I bring on right I'm not going to bring in someone who's a predator who's creepy we're talking about working with minors to the parents you're like please never do that Um, and you understand and I want to avoid someone for myself right who has the same competitive nature as me because if they're always competitive and I'm wanting to be competitive too and I'm fighting that, then it's just bad for the kids, right? It's bad for me, it's bad for the kids and then we create a culture of just saying winning is everything. That's not what I want. But instead I'm gonna find someone who I think hopefully aligns with me, right? Aligns with my struggle But also is, you know, this is ideal, and I hope this can always be the case, someone that's better than me uh, at that job, at that role. I want to pray for someone and bring someone in that can make the kids feel safe, right? Let the kids know that they're doing a good job, that they can keep working hard, that things do pay off if they work hard. But I also hope for someone with good boundaries, right? Anytime you work with minors, you got to have good boundaries, right? I want someone who gets the frustrations of playing tennis. And uh, tennis players, any individual sports, you kind of know how self-deprecating you are. Golf players, you guys know this too, we're the worst <laughs> when it comes to self-deprecating talk. Uh, every time you hit the ball wrong, you're like, why do I suck? Um, every time you you like move or you kind of trip, sorry, <laughs> Derek. <laughs> right? You're like, why am I so slow? Uh, I can't do anything, right? Tennis players, we're the worst with our talk. And I want to bring in someone that's a positive voice. That in the midst of like what feels like inevitable self-deprecation, I want to bring in someone that is a positive voice for these kids. And I want to be around that kind of person because, well, I'm trying to bridge the gap. Right? Bridge the gap between sports and faith and to really bring out the voices of all these kids who are athletes and have them know that they have a voice that they can share and that, you know, who knew that sports could be something faith-driven? And when you're in good, godly company, and I have a great JV coach. I'm hoping to bring in a really solid assistant coach, right? Right? When they're all thinking the same way and they all prioritize those same things, they influence me, right? I am influenced by them being godly company. And their life speaks major encouragement to me. I need that, not just in the church, but even outside of the church. And so our last point, our last commitment, and commitment is hard. So if you're hanging in there with me, I want you to know you're doing great. Right, Commitment is always hard. Last one, the commitment to standing up against wickedness and evil. In verses four to five, seven to eight, and we'll see that this is actually probably the most mentioned topic out of all the commitments I've just given you. Four to five, David says here, he creates a separation, the perverse will hear, the perverse hear, yeah, sorry. The perverse ear will be far from him and he wants nothing to do with it. He equates it to those who slander and he won't tolerate slander or pride because he thinks they're evil and wicked. Verse seven and eight, David mentions again, he won't allow people to have influence, evil people to have influence and power, especially in his home and domain. For David, it's a practice of discretion, but it's also a practice of protection. And he commits to it every morning, I'm going to make sure they're separate. And I think, and this is really important, it's because David understands that wickedness has this tendency to breed more wickedness. And so you have to separate it. Now, when we talk about wickedness and evil, it's like blameless, right? It's a word we don't use often, we don't like to use often, but I think we have to bring it up. Because if we don't bring it up, it'll kind of be like this analogy. So Michelle, Michelle's my girlfriend. Uh, She has her own place. And so she's been trying to remodel her house. And if if anyone knows, parents, if you lived in a house remodel, it's a pain. Uh, There's so much things that go on. And so they're knocking down all the walls, right, of her bathroom, and they have to do inspection. And so one of the things that they inspect for is black mold. And be aware, this is only two weeks ago, so this is a little fresh. Um, and so they inspect for black mold. And so when she got the test, I also realized I never told her I was telling this story. <laughs> so uh, sorry, but I'll ask for forgiveness later. <laughs> but when she gets the test result back, it's positive for black mold. And black mold is terrible. Yeah, Vicky has her like face like, oh my gosh, right? Black mold is terrible because if you're an infant, you can really infants die from black mold. If you're an adult, you will have long-term effects because of, res- you're, essentially it's going to destroy your respiratory system completely. And so naturally you're like, oh my gosh, that's the worst possible news. Well, it gets worse. <laughs> so we realized that her piping is also, her piping from her upstairs bathroom is connected to her downstairs bathroom. So if there's any source of water running down, from the contractor's point of view, that means there's probably black mold in your downstairs bathroom too. And so what does that mean? You gotta knock everything out and do everything over again. Check for the black mold. And the only way to know that there's black mold in the other like restroom or the other bathroom is literally to knock it down. It's the only way you'll know there's black mold. Evil is kind of like black mold, right? And we, It looks, it lurks in the shadows. We know it's kind of there, but you kind of ignore it or you're just like, oh, I'm not sure about the potential of it. So I'm just gonna kind of let it be. But in that meantime, it's kind of growing and growing and it's starting to fester, right? Evil is a very real thing. When we think of sin, right, it's evil, right? And there's so many, we talked about embezzlement. Embezzlement is evil. Human trafficking is evil. Pornography is evil. And we understand that when usually people get into one of those things, right, it starts with something small. Okay, I just look up something, or I just take a dollar or two, and then I, I can let it go. And then over time, it builds because you got off with it. No one got in trouble. You didn't get in trouble. And then over time, it builds up. And we have to acknowledge that, yeah, they're little things, and like sometimes we're like, uh, I'll just let it go. But what they do build into mass evil. And if we allow it to fester, just like the black mold, it's going to spread. It's going to get worse. And we must acknowledge evil's presence because when we acknowledge it, we actually give opportunity to abolish it. Right? To abolish its influence, abolish its spread. And so... Most of us, right, I said it already, we're coworkers, we work in the working field, or we're students. And when we think about like our friends and our family, if someone is talking smack on them, right, they're being slandered, or someone's spreading gossip about them, are you gonna stop it? Or are you just gonna be there like listening to them and like let it go, let them continue? Because that gives them permission to continue. And maybe you've seen something inappropriate, right? We, I talk about it as a coach. Inappropriate advances, harassment, right? It's uncomfortable to see it. It's even more uncomfortable to call it out. And maybe, <laughs> I, I used this already, you saw someone take cash out of cash drawer, right? I used to work in food service, and so I've seen it happen before. What would you do? Would you just let it happen, say it's just a couple dollars, Or would you approach that person? I told that person, hey, if I see it again, you're you're done. At this point, I was a manager, so I could do that. But I wanted to give him a chance. What are we going to do when we are in front of and confronted with injustice, when we are confronted with evil in the smallest forms and in the biggest forms? What are we going to do? And so one last thing about tennis, and I I promise this is enough tennis for today. (laughs) Yeah. Sorry, probably not going to play today. Too much tennis here. But during the tennis season, right, we have matches and we play other teams. And I have a player who's of immense talent, right? He can go D1, D2 easily uh, with his talent. And I've told him this many, many times. And he's probably also good because of his dad. So his dad is the epitome of a sports parent. Uh, super involved, maybe a little too involved. Um, but I don't mind being involved. Uh, I don't mind like him wanting his son to win, uh, to compete well. I really don't mind that. But when I see his dad, I see a very clear divide between me and him. And so we have a match. Boy's playing. He's playing one of the best players in our league, right? You're talking about a kid who's ranked top 50 in California, right? Superb talent on both ends, and he's just tanking. And his dad is there watching every little thing, and his dad is just critiquing him. And it's like it's not like a whisper. I kind of whisper in my mouth because I try not to say anything out loud when I'm like critical, but his dad is like saying it loud, right? my gosh, he's so lazy. He's not moving his feet, he's not hitting through the ball. What's wrong with him? And he's loud. And so even his son hears all these words from afar and I can tell, right? I, I have a player who's, he, he, this kid is huge, right? He's six foot two, right? 230 pounds a pure muscle, like eats chicken and rice for his like, lifestyle. So he's huge and he's fit, but he's starting to slouch and he's starting to be sluggish, and he's becoming slower and slower. He hits the ball into the net, he drops the racket, because he's just like losing his focus, because he hears every single word his dad says, and it's kind of just destroying him inside. And he loses the match, and it makes sense, right? Dude, with that kind of talk, man, I I would lose it. And so he comes off the court, and he has a towel over his head, he has a towel over his head, and he's just a shadow. Right, It literally just looks like this, and the towel's draped. And that's heartbreaking, right? A parent, right? A parent holds the greatest platform of influence for a child. And yet, in that platform, this same parent gives this kid the most degrading words. And in their place of power, in their place of influence, They destroy their own kid's confidence. It's wicked. It's evil. And I won't stand for it. Because if I could do and I just let it go, the dad continues, right? And so as a coach and a Christian, I went up to the dad. And this is like right after the match is done or right after the set is done. He still has another another set with another player. But I went up to the dad and be aware. Genetics are really real. So the kid is six foot two, super broad. The dad is the same thing. But now he has like dad bods. So it's like, he's like way bigger. (laughs) Yeah, it's kind of scary. So like I compare him to like Goliath and I felt like David, right? And I go up to him though. And I'm scared, I'm nervous. Is he gonna like knock me out for like saying what I'm about to say? But I go as sternly as I possibly can and I tell him, If you're going to keep acting like this, if you're going to keep treating your son like this, I will not have you here. I don't want that kind of presence for your son. I don't want that kind of presence for these children. And if you're going to be like this, it's okay to stay home. (laughs) And thankfully, he he doesn't punch me, doesn't knock me out, but he kind of just stared at me for like, like, like a minute. Like it felt like a very, very long, like he was just like looking at me. And I kind of just walked away because I was like, just before anything else bad happens, I'm going to get out of this situation. So a week later, right, kids, we're still in season and everything. We have another match. Dad's been, this dad has been slightly quieter. And I'm kind of like, like I don't know if it's just like built up anger and like he's going to get at me at some point but randomly he starts approaching me. And I'm thinking the worst, right? Like, oh no, he's finally approaching me. It's about time. All right, I have the med kit inside my car. I'll be fine. (laughs) But instead of punching me, which I'm so thankful he didn't, he apologizes, right? He says, I'm so sorry. I didn't realize what I was doing. I didn't think about how I was treating my kid. And after you said that, I realized I was in the wrong. And for guys, that's really hard to like, and for anyone, it's so hard to admit that. You're clearly in the wrong, but to say it out loud is huge. And I kind of was just like, hey, you know, this isn't between you and me, right? This issue, the degradation, the harsh words, it's not between you and me, but it's between you and your son you need to give him words of affirmation. You need to give him words of life because that's what matters the most. It's not from me, but it's from his own dad, the one who has the most platform, the one who has the most influence. That You're the one who's going to change things for him. Next thing you know, I, I hear him talking, right? He's starting to get a little bit louder. And when I hear his voice, I'm a little scared, but he's saying actually really nice things to his son. He's saying, hey, you're working hard, keep working. It's like, it sounds so cheesy, but he's like, I I feel like he's forcing it, but at least he's trying, right? He's trying really hard. He's saying things like, hey, great forehand, you did a good job. I was like, oh, that's so cheesy, but true, yes, he did, right? And he's trying so hard at that point to give words of affirmation, to give words of life to his son, but it didn't happen without acknowledging what was evil it didn't happen without acknowledging that maybe his heart wasn't in the right place in the first part, and that he needed to change the way he was acting, he needed to change the way he was stewarding his platform, he needed to change in order to kind of live a blameless life. Now, the son is Christian, the dad isn't, but I think it was a great lesson, though, in regards when we look at this Psalm, that we see a David who wants to live a blameless life who desires to be in godly company, and in doing so, it encourages him, it gives him the strength, I think, to do exactly what we do at the end, to end evil, to call it out, and to exchange it for something that is good, something that is of God. And that's what we get to do every day of our lives. We get to go out into the world, have a platform of influence. It's small, it's large, I don't know what your platform of influence looks like, but you get to go out there, see evil, face it front, and know that one, you are completely supported, you're loved, you have community, and that you have the ability to turn something that is evil, something that is wicked, and bring in God's love, God's justice, God's goodness. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, um, Lord, I just pray for our church. Lord, we call ourselves Renewed Church. And um, Lord, it reminds me that if we're to do this role of renewing this world, Lord, would you give us immense strength, immense strength to see you, to know you, to love you, and to be committed, Lord, to the things of you. And so, Lord, I, I just pray for our congregation and any guests today. Would they be blessed to know, Lord, they have a God of the universe by their side who is present with them. And, Lord, they have immense strength in you, Lord, um, to do all these things. And so, Lord, we, we just pray that, um, and we pray for myself, that as we see our platform, um, that we would see you. And that we would know you, love you, and bring you into those spaces. In Jesus' name pray.
0: Hi, this is Pastor Wilson again. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If our sermons have been a blessing to you, I'd love for you to consider supporting our church and ministry. As we approach the end of the year, we're asking our church family to consider investing into a special fund that support our interns and seminarians. Renew has a vision of investing in pastors for the next generation through our internship program. And your financial partnership can help set up a young pastor or missionary to faithfully serve the Lord for the next 30 to 40 years. I often dream about what Erwin or Kevin will do for the kingdom of God through their 30s, 40s, and 60s. Our goal is to raise $50,000 over the season. Would you consider joining us? You can give through PayPal or Venmo or by sending a check. All the information is on the description section of the podcast, or you can visit our website, and your investment is tax-deductible. Thank you so much for being a part of our church family. If you're ever in the Fortin, California area, please drop by into our Sunday service. I'd love to meet you. God bless.